So for this episode, what I thought I would do is just reevaluate my um, one of the first episodes I did my story. In fact, I think it was episode number one of the podcast and just kind of redo it and see where I where I am now as opposed to where I was when I did that. Let's bring this one just a bit a bit closer here. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Darren McKenney. Um When I was 12 years of age, I was in year eight at school, which I think is ninth grade. It's the second year of, of secondary school. Anybody in the UK will know. Um, when I was in year eight, at the age of 12, I was in a science class. And I was never aware that I was squeamish or anything of the like um, up until that point. I remember going with my mum once to have a blood test done. Not for me, but for her. Um, and I remember when I saw the needle go in, I was just, I came over all, all very strange. And it was like, it was like being whacked in the head and having everything suddenly start to spin and everything went weak and fuzzy. And I just, uh, uh, clearly I came over really pasty and pale and I just didn't look well because the, uh, the nurse grabbed me and told me to lay down. And it, it certainly wasn't nice. I began sweating. I began doing all this sort of thing. I didn't realise it was a it was a vasovagal response at that time, but uh, since then I've, I've come to learn that quite closely. Um, this, this was before year eight, um, but then year eight comes and I'm in a science class and we were supposed to be dissecting uh, pigs' hearts, which I was worried. I had a huge fear. I always did of throwing up. I can't remember the, ten, the scientific name for it, but I, I still do. I, I just hate the idea. And I suppose it kept me rather healthy because I haven't thrown up since, until, uh, since I was 10, which is 15 years, which is pretty good. Um, and I was really worried that day that I would end up throwing up at the sight of the the, uh, of the pig's hearts and things like that. I had no reason to think I would, but I was just that afraid that anything that could potentially trigger it, I was nervous of. Um, and it turns out the pig's hearts, the delivery driver couldn't actually deliver them on that day. So we were kind of, I was given a reprieve. I thought, thank God, but don't, I don't have to worry about that. However, what we were studying at the time was the circulatory system. Um, very interesting area of biology, but for someone who wasn't who wasn't aware but was squeamish at the time, it's not the best. And the teacher used one certain word, which I'm not going to repeat because it still makes me feel iffy, regarding um, something that can happen <laughs> if you if you damage yourself. And um, God, it, it, it's the same feeling came over. It was. If you've ever closed your eyes and rubbed your eyes you get this kind of over time you get this green kind of fuzz appear in your in your sight and when you're opening your eyes it's like a blind spot of fuzziness I wonder how many of you have tried it now <laughs> but um that came over me again and I, the room started to spin and i started to feel just really good and i thought i'm gonna throw up anyway and um I remember doing that. I remember putting my hands on my eyes like that and the whole room was spinning and then I woke up on the floor. And I, I kind of semi-remember some some experience during the time I was unconscious, but I might be completely wrong. I just kind of vaguely recall something. But probably nothing. It could all just be kind of me remembering something that didn't happen. <laughs> but I remember waking up on the floor and I'd cracked my head on the table as I went down and everybody was looking over me. You know, you can imagine what kids are like in, in secondary school. They're looking over me. And um, I became kind of Wallace after that because apparently I had, if you ever seen Wallace and Gromit, the animated program, he does this. He gets really excited whenever he thinks he's going to eat cheese. He goes, oh, cheese, Gromit. And um, apparently I did that on the floor when I was having a 
slight fit, I suppose, because um, obviously I was unconscious, and, and I know that sometimes during those episodes you can have uh, tremors and things. Um, and I woke up, and I thought, this isn't this this is something's wrong, and I thought I was. Uh, this is one reason why I th- I wonder if I did have some sort of experience because I remember waking up thinking, oh, is is this the real the real version? And I, I reached out, and my, my teacher was crouched down next to me, saying, "You know, are you all right, Darren?" And I touched his leg, and I felt it, and I thought, "Oh crap, this is real. <laughs> this is the real bit." Um, and I was just lying there, feeling like crap. And I, I went to get up. I said, "Oh, what happened? Did I pass out?" I remember lying there saying, oh, "Did I, I pass out?" He said, "I don't know." <laughs> and I was lying there, and I, I went to get up, and I went, "Oh shit, no!" And went straight back down again. It is really like getting hit over the head, and it's it's horrible. He asked me afterwards, so what, "What was it like passing out?" And I said, "It was, it was like going to sleep." It wasn't. Um, it kind of was, but it wasn't. It was like feeling crap, and then waking up on the floor feeling crap as well. If you've never fainted, you don't really know what I mean. It's not a nice thing to do, and it's a vasovagal syncope. It's called, which is where your um, vagus nerve, for some reason, is overstimulated at the site of the site or the mention of blood or things related to that and you go over since then every time i've ever had a blood test i've always had that same reaction i've never fainted since in fact when i had a flexible sigmoidoscopy which is uh to put it in simple terms the camera up the backside uh that even triggered the the response and i had that but i've never lost consciousness since but since then um after then sorry everything was fine for a while there was no issue i just i went in and Clearly, something had kind of tweaked a bit in my head because whenever anybody would say to me, you know, would bring up that day, I always suddenly came over feeling a bit weird and they'd say, oh, you've gone pale. So there was always a kind of physical response to the idea of, of what had happened. Uh, but it was fine for a while. And then over time, just, I began to feel really ill all the time in class. And yeah, I just felt really... I was always in the... Um, first aid room because I always thought something was, was wrong with me not because I was worried that there might be something but because I felt ill I physically felt ill I felt lightheaded all the time I felt trembly I felt sweaty I felt sick all the time and it started off quite mild but over time it became more and more pronounced eventually I ended up in the learning support area of the school um, at the time I was kind of aimed to get A's and B's or the equivalents of A's A stars and B's and throughout my time in the learning support area, because it wasn't catered for people who were intellectually quite, I mean, I was always quite quite smart because my mum and, and my dad had always put in a lot of time with me when I was young. So I was, I was quite clever. And the learning support area was catered for those with learning disabilities um, who were unable to learn. So it wasn't catered for my kind of brain. And I went from A's and A stars and B's down to D's and E's and, and failures, <laughs> effectively. And even though I was down there, I mean, there was a woman there who was the head of the department who uh, she didn't have the, the the wisdom or the skills to work in that kind of area. She was very, she would have done better in the army. To put it into perspective, I remember I had a girlfriend who was feeling down or ill or just depressed or something. And I put my arm around her during the break time and I got an absolute rollicking for that. She pulled me into the office and had a moan at me for not had a moan, she had a bellow at me for having my arm around this girl and she's saying it was completely inappropriate and things like that. So that's the sort of crowd I was with, um, which didn't help. And my 
having since learned that it was anxiety, we went to the doctors to to get everything checked down. She said, yeah, you've definitely got a generalized anxiety disorder. Um, so I ended up in there and it ended up getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually depression kicked in where I was just feeling physically like I was dying every day. Um, I remember the, ang- the anxiety attacks I used to have. We went once to my... And if you're watching Tony or Joe, you'll remember this. Uh, you probably... I don't think you saw it, but you definitely would have heard of it. Because uh, it was at your... It was at my uncle's 50th, my aunt's 40th. Uh, oh no, my, my uncle's 50th, my cousin's 18th, and my other cousin's 21st combined, I think. And it was just a get-together. And I just... We got to... There was a disco in one room. And I remember sitting there. I was sitting outside the disco area talking to some family that I hadn't been aware of since uh, previously to that we were just talking and suddenly uh, I mean it wasn't there was nothing to trigger it just it it was like I'd taken some sort of drug and it was messing with every sense organ I had I could see perfectly clearly but it wasn't right my hearing went again I could hear everything perfectly but it just wasn't right and I, I just I thought that is it I'm having a heart attack or I'm something's wrong I'm about to collapse into a coma something's wrong with my brain you know I, I feel really really crap so I, I ran and I got mum and we ended up going outside I sat down with my head between my legs like that just feeling not right I, I was completely on a different realm of existence even though i was still here and everything was working fine it just it was not translating properly into my brain and everything was so weird and so so other world worldly in in quality it's, it's impossible to explain and those symptoms once the initial blast of it had slightly worn off it never it didn't really completely wear off for weeks but for weeks after that i was just not right um and that was quite early on Eventually, it developed further and further, and the depression became worse and worse as I was seeing the rest of my life being like this, feeling ill every day. And I thought, I, I just I can't cope with that idea. And eventually I had a, I don't know if you'd officially call it a breakdown, but it, was, it wasn't a good state of mind, and I just lost it. I completely lost grip of everything, and I thought, I've had enough. And at 16... Um, at 16 I had the breakdown and that's when I became suicidal and I had my mum up by the throat against the wall uh, and if you know me I'm not violent at all I, I, I never have been I couldn't, it's just not my nature but when you're in that state you become feral because it, it's your survival mechanism takes over and she was trying to get me into school and I didn't want to go to school because I couldn't face another day of just feeling crap. And I'd come to my breaking point and I had her up against the wall and I said, you're not fucking taking me to school. I'm not fucking going, that sort of thing. I didn't hold her tight by the throat by any means. I just I held her just by the, by the throat. I ended up calling Nan, my grandmother, and saying, I've had, I'm at the end of my week. I've got to, I'm going to have to come and stay with you for a while. I can't face being here at the moment. She ended up calling my dad, who called mum, who was at work, and she came home. And at that point, I'd ripped handfuls of my hair out, uh, and I was a complete mess. 
and that was it. That, that was the that was when I became suicidal. And I remember standing in the kitchen on that day before I called Nan, and I had a knife. Um, I think it was one of those extra sharp kind of double pronged things up against my neck like that. And I was saying, just just do it. But part of the depression, part of the anxiety, major part of it. In fact, the whole thing, the whole anxiety was focused around health and the other fear of death. So I was like that, and I was willing myself to plunge the knife in, and I, I couldn't, and I knew I wouldn't. But I, I stayed in that position anyway, knowing nothing would happen, and trying to will myself to do something. But the fear of death and what was to come after, the fear of not existing anymore, luckily stopped me from doing it. As I say, I stood there knowing nothing would come of it, but trying to, I don't know why I did it, but I wonder if that fear wasn't there, whether I would have, and I believe I probably would have. Um, and that was at 16. So I was pulled out of school, um, and I ended up having to be home-tutored because I couldn't go in. The school were useless at providing any kind of support. So mum had to get another job, bless her, to, to pay for it, and we had to get home-tutors done. Uh, I came out eventually with A's and B's. But during that time, the only thing really that kept me going was the idea that maybe there is something more. And maybe it's all been for a reason. Because if if this is it and this is how my life was and there's nothing to come afterwards, it was just, there was no point. What's the point? You know, and even now, I think if, if there is nothing to come after physical death, I might as well just, just go. You know, life here isn't, isn't good. I mean, in terms of... Um, human quality my life's pretty good pretty good but life in general on this planet the way people are and the way the situations are it's not a good place it's not a nice place not a pleasant place to live by any means and if I thought this was it gone once you're dead you're gone and nothing matters why why should I stay and I still think like that every now and then but it was this kind of thing, this anxiety, this fear of death that really pushed me into looking at the subjects that I look at. And yes, that may mean that there's a bias there to try and find data that fits my wishes of there to be something after physical death and something much better than here, which I try to counter at every possible time. And I think I do quite successfully. But when you get to that level, and this is quite this is quite important. When you get to that level, and I'm sure many of you have been there, where you're faced with two choices. You either continue to live with no prospect of any future outside of suffering and force yourself through it. Maybe it'll end, maybe it won't. But when you're living in a time period where every day is, is, is shit, you don't think logically and you don't think that this is only a blip and it will go and that it, life will be better in time. You don't think like that because here now life is crap and there's no sense that it'll ever change. So that's your, that's, that's your option. You either continue with it in the hopes that maybe hopelessly it will get better or you decide to cut your ties early and, and leave. And cutting your ties early and leaving is not a bad option when you're in that situation. People will say, 
to those who are suicidal, they'll say, you've got so much to live for, you know, think of your parents, think of those you'll leave behind. It's not the right thing to do. It's a stupid thing to do. It's not. When you're in that situation, it's a very, very appealing option. And it's a sensible option from your point of view. Why would you live the next 80, 60, however many years left of your life you've got, knowing damn well it's going to be absolutely horrible? And I say knowing because during that state, you know, you, you can't see anything else. You know that the rest of your life's going to be crap, whether it is or not in reality. At that stage, that's all you see. Why would anybody in their right mind choose to continue living that craply, you know, that much, with that much suffering for the next 50 or 60 years? That's a hell of a long time. So I more than sympathise with those that have chosen that way out because it is a very appealing option. Luckily, uh, for me, I didn't have, really have that option because the fear of death completely overwhelmed everything. And the, the fear of just never existing again, which is what I believed at that time, that death is the end of everything. And just trying to imagine what it would be like to live forever or, or to never exist again forever not 10 years, not 100 years, not 1,000 years, but forever. And trying to conceptualise what that would be like was so terrifying to me that I didn't follow through. And I, I took option one, that I would continue in the hopeless hope that life would get better, which, of course, it did, because that's the nature of depression. You go through swings low, swings high. I was in a swing low, and I, it was a very, very low low. Since then, I've never had a low quite so bad, but I... I've come close. I've been suicidal since then. Um, but through, from that first experience, I now know that it will get better. So I've never followed through with any, anything since. I've been able to identify that, yes, I'm suicidal. Yes, I'm currently thinking that I should, maybe I could consider it. But I know damn well that it's an illusion. Because I've already lived it a few times now. But luckily, you know, I had support from my parents. And I was never one to hide anything. I was always completely upfront with everything I felt, everything I was worried about. And that's the problem, I think. That's where a lot of suicides come from, with the idea that you can't share because you're embarrassed or you can't share because people think you're mad, which, again, is part of the thinking of a depressed mind. So if you are going through depression, and this sounds familiar, you know, don't keep it hidden. That's the worst thing you can do. Because if no one knows that you're suffering, no one can help you. And don't think you can do it alone because you can't. Um, ultimately, it's down to you to sort yourself out. But you need something to hold your hand along the way because that's what human beings are supposed to do. That's what we've evolved to do, to work together. And facing something 100% alone, although ultimately it's down to you yourself to, to make yourself better, You've got to have that help and that support from other people. And there are people there to help you, even though you don't see them. And you know, during the time that this anxiety was rampant, I was having strange, strange things. Like I was, I had obsessive ideas. That I had to do everything. For example, I had to do everything three times. There was no logic to it. And whenever I thought about it, I thought, why, why am I restarting this song three times? Why am I scratching myself in a certain way every time? Why am I doing this three times? And there was no logic to it. I was looking at it and I was thinking, I know damn well it's not going to make any difference. But my mind was telling me if I don't do this three times, something seriously bad is going to happen to me. I'm going to go into a coma or I'm going to die or I'm going to throw up. Or I'm going to do whatever. 
And that's that's a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. People think that OCD is, is keeping everything tidy or, or washing your hands a few times a day. That, that's not what OCD is. It can lead to that. But OCD is doing something illogical and knowing it's illogical, but doing it anyway because something inside you is telling you if you don't do it, you're going to, something seriously bad's going to happen. And you know it's bullshit. And you know it's all in your head, but you, you, you've got to do it. And it, 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 it's exhausting. It really is. So as I say, one way that I used to kind of exist through that was the promise that, or with the hope, I suppose, that something more was to come and that it would all make sense and it would all be better afterwards. But at the time, I wasn't convinced of that. And I believed completely that once you die, you die. I was always very scientifically minded. I saw no reason to believe otherwise. I thought that near-death experiences and things like that were all just wishful thinking, dying brain. Religion was always bullshit to me. It still is to a to a big degree, but in a different way. And when I started, I think the first thing I looked at was mediumship, actually. I always thought it was near-death experiences, but thinking back, I think it was mediumship was the first thing I looked at. Because I always thought, you know, it was, they were all charlatans just out to make money off of bereaved people. But... As I began to read and listen to things, I started becoming interested because I started, started to think, if, if these people are all cold reading, they're bloody good at it because there's no way you'd be able to get that specific information out of, out of people and, and things like that. And I went to a couple myself just to try it out. And one was very good. One was clearly not anything outside of either being horrible at interpreting the signs or just being a complete scam artist. But the first one was very good and that kind of, got me thinking a bit deeper and when I started looking at near-death phenomena I was disappointed because it was all this you go and you see a light and you see your deceased people and whatever and then you come back and you, you you say I want to come back and you come back and I was quite disappointed but when I found out about veridical perception now you have there was an objective thing that made everything a lot more plausible to me because now you had people in a certain state seeing things that they should not physically be able to see and people backing that up third party verification and that's when I really began to get interested in the near-death phenomena itself I mean the, the whole seeking eye thing wasn't for near-death experiences it was it was mainly just to discover what happens after physical death but near-death experiences seem to be one of the most important pieces of evidence at least near-death experiences with veridical perception because these show actions taking place in real life that shouldn't happen and actions that do suggest that the uh, that consciousness can continue without the physical brain which opens up the wide possibilities of what happens after death and when that door is opened then suddenly these experiences that people have had where they've said they've been visited by deceased people and they've been to the afterlife through out-of-body projection or astral projection out-of-body experiences suddenly they become a lot more credible <laughs> And a lot more believable because now we have physical evidence to suggest that maybe a mind can exist without a brain. So therefore, why shouldn't we be able to have these experiences and why shouldn't we believe them to be as they say they are on the tin? As of right now, I am not convinced that life continues after death. 
I've never had a near-death experience. I've never had an out-of-body experience. I've never had any kind of psi phenomena take place. I have had after-death communications from my, my boys, my dogs, and potentially from my grandparents as well, although not as clear by any means. Um, and although the experiences I had of Ty and Omi visiting me or sending me signs, although they were very clear, there's always that part of me that says, but logically, there are other reasons why these this could have happened. Despite them being somewhat far-fetched, fetched, but in some part of my mind, I can see that, yes, that could always be an explanation. And despite all the research I've done, all the people I've spoken to, I'm still not convinced. I don't believe that there is no life on Earth. I believe there is. But I'm not convinced. And I don't think I should be convinced. And I don't think anyone ever should be convinced. Because as soon as you become convinced, anything that counters that conviction will be ignored and you will believe that it must be wrong or it must fit somewhere, even though it doesn't. And that's not the way to progress in human knowledge. You've got to be open and you've got to be willing to admit that you don't know and you may be wrong. And given the size and the complexity of the universe, you damn well are likely to be wrong. We're likely to be wrong in everything that we think we know, at least about the fundamental aspects of, of reality. Um, and since the first My Story episode that I did, I've delved a lot more into the philosophies of things and I've realised more that I haven't got a clue what I'm talking about in terms of philosophies and things like that. And if I try to talk on them, I'm, I'm going to be talking about things that I don't understand. Um, and I watch videos of, of people who are trying to debunk near-death experiences or trying to talk about the evidence against near-death experiences. And I find myself listening to them, knowing that they haven't, they don't know the literature, but they bring up points and you think, that's a good point. I don't know why this is the case or why this isn't the case. And yes, that does seem quite damning. But then what I do from there is I ask people and I ask people that I know are credible um, individuals who have studied this phenomenon. And I ask them about the about the opposition that's come up and what they think about it. Because I believe that going to the people that have done the research and are active in doing the research still is the only way to get the credible information of the research as it currently stands. Um, a lot of people are satisfied with third-party commentaries on the people that are doing the research. Um, most of the commentary, especially from the sceptical side of which, are not informed at all and are just basing it off the assumption that they must be flawed in some way and here's how they may be flawed despite being completely not what the data says but equally you see on sites um who are supportive of the research and are supportive of spiritual things in general you see a lot of a lot of logicless faith i suppose people that believe what they believe illogically and because it feels good and because it comforts them which is not a bad thing necessarily for your own piece of life but it's not based in reality for me it's not it's not evidenced by data it's not evidenced by reality it's just a belief that you have in faith 
which is why I could never get into religion. And I see things on Facebook groups and, and everything where they, they, someone posts a picture. They say I had I was visited by um, my son or my daughter or my grandfather or whatever, and here he is, and they circle something that very, 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 very vaguely resembles a face. And you see the list of comments and everybody's saying, oh, I see him, I also see a dog, I see this, I see that. And I'm looking at it and I think, it's, it's just a foggy window, there's nothing there. And you dare say that, and you dare bring up the fact that, you know, I don't, I don't want to hurt you or whatever, but, you know, you, you can't, there's nothing there. You're, see, you're forcing something in. I'm not saying that they're not, that they haven't given you science before, but in this instance, there is nothing there. You're, you're forcing something to fit. You're, you're biasing it so that it, it fits and other people are, are stringing you along, also filled with biases, seeing things that aren't there. And you dare say that, God, you're going to be, you're going to be attacked for it. And it's just as bad on both sides in terms of one side attacking the other. It happens both ways and it's a shame. And I think it's a shame when people resort to that because there is such good information out there, verifiable, evidenced phenomena that do suggest what you are trying to find. But do it the right way. Do it in a way that progresses human understanding of reality and what consciousness is and what happens at death. And I've completely given up now. I started off on, on Seeking Eye um, as a way of sharing information. I, uh, I started it in 2018. Um, it started off as just a... Well, originally it was going to be a course in my local area. I hired out a... Um, I hired out the village hall and I planned on just talking through kind of my ideas with other people and nobody showed up. <laughs> so I decided I won't bother doing that. I'll start a Facebook group. That was the first thing. I think I think the Facebook group was the first thing. And I just started talking to people. Um, one, the first person I interviewed was called Chris, Christine Ashton. Um, she's probably watching this. And it was on Reiki, and I found her at a local group, spiritual group, of people that were discussing the idea of Reiki and energy and things like that. Something I'd never really thought of hearing about. Um, but I went there and I heard her speak, and I said, "Would you be interested in doing a, an interview? I've started this new project. I, you know, I'm looking for people to to talk about this kind of thing." And she did, and she came round, um, and we had a chat about Reiki. I put it up on YouTube, and that was the first one. A long time ago in 2018 three years ago <laughs> bloody hell and since then you know i've started the podcast which is still going a lot longer than i thought it would i've had the huge opportunity to talk to the great people who have researched the various areas you know the top of ians jan you know met jan who's a really good friend of mine now who has done a hell of a lot for me you know to help seek an eye out and help me out personally as well um but you know, Bruce Grayson, Eben Alexander, very high, highly regarded individuals who have agreed to talk to me just because I have a genuine interest in this subject, not to promote anything um, or to, no one's ever charged me anything for the time. They're just happy to talk to people who are genu genuinely interested in this subject, which I think is, is a wonderful thing. I mean, I've never made a penny out of Seeking Eye, never been interested in making money out of Seeking Eye. It's, if I could and I could do this as a career, great. Uh, if I can't, I'll keep it going as long as I can share information that I, that I learn and for as long as I learn. I've never been interested in making money out of it. Now, I did start doing um, interviews with skeptics 
YouTube skeptics who aren't skeptics uh, and debates. Since doing that, I've decided not to continue that because um, I probably will continue the debates when I can find people to do it. Not many people are interested, but interviews with skeptics who have other channels, I'm going to keep a long way away from that now because the last few times I've done it, I've, felt I've faced nothing but backlash when they've put it on their own channels and it's just been piss-taking and abuse. I mean, the internet, on the internet, abuse, language that entails abuse towards a person is seen as normal. And it's a shame, a big, 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 big shame. Because it's not. <laughs> it's the amount of bullying, what would be considered bullying to any normal person, and beyond bullying to, you know, emotional abuse is commonplace and is normal. Which is why I I have a huge I put a huge priority on um on respect to everybody who participates in anything on Seeking Eye and if anybody starts insulting the other or begins to get you know abusive within Seeking Eye even if it's halfway through a debate, if one person begins to attack the other one, they're gone, and I stop the video there and then. I'm not, I'm not catering to any of that that stuff because it's not necessary and it's not normal and it's not nice. <laughs> but I mean, even on, I played a game called uh, Rocket League for a while. Don't know if you, if anybody knows about it, but Christ, the community on there, the things they say. I mean, it's effectively it's a car soccer game, and many times when I've played the game and I've say missed the ball I've been told that my parents need to go and get cancer and I hope that they and that they hope that they die in pain as I'm watching and that sort of thing and that's considered normal I put up a <laughs> I put up an a um, complaint about it a review on it saying is this normal and all the responses I got were saying I'll grow up it's just online banter things like that I hope your mum and your dad die in pain and that you're there to watch it that's not banter to me but on the internet now, this is commonplace. And that's why I'm I'm keeping away from that kind of environment. Debates, especially those who debate online, because online debates are not debates anymore. They're, they're boxing matches, which is why I wanted to start doing Seeking Eye debates in the proper, proper ways. Proper debates, respectful debates, exchanging of information, asking questions. Not you're wrong because you're stupid or you're wrong because you believe in a flying spaghetti monster god and that's stupid and you're a retard and all that sort of thing. You know, that's what debates are now and it's a shame. Intellectual debate has completely vanished, it seems, especially online. So at the end of the day, you know, when it comes to Seeking Eye, don't follow me hoping I'm going to teach you stuff, <laughs> hoping that I'm going to be a kind of a, I don't know, a guru. I'm not. I don't know half the stuff that a lot of people know you know ch the channels that profess to know about consciousness and that profess to be gurus and astral projectors and um meditators and whatever if you're looking to learn how to do that sort of stuff go to them i'm i'm just seeking eyes just me learning and you seeing my progress in learning you know i don't i'm not well versed on science i'm not well versed on philosophy at all I'm just want seeking eye to be kind of a a pathway for you to find to find the information through 
me, not from me, if you see what I mean. And hopefully I'm doing an all right job. I've been told I'm all right at um I've been told I'm all right at interviewing people, which I just talk to people. I don't really interview them. But it seems to people seem to learn from it, which is nice. And I certainly learn from from it. So that's kind of where I came from, what I'm doing and what I hope to do ongoing. Um it's just an update, I suppose the form of a podcast episode i did my story a while ago uh, I, th- I think in fact i did that in 2018 or early 2019 so it's been a, a while about time for an update uh, and just a rehash of of my my story so that's me <laughs> and i hope i hope everyone continues to stick with me as we as we both continue to learn together <laughs>